Hey everybody, it's Brad here. Before we get started with the show today, I wanted to take a minute and let you guys know about our coaching program we run here at Macros Inc. We believe that every person on the planet deserves to live their healthiest and best life. A qualified nutrition coach and personal trainer can be the key to living that life. At Macros Inc., we provide fully customized one-on-one nutrition coaching and online personal training that has changed the lives of 10,000 people and counting. We offer a two-week free trial for our nutrition coaching, and you can get started risk-free today. Just go to macrosinc.net slash services and sign up. Let's get into the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Today, we bring back on our very special guest, Dr. Michael Stair, who joins us every couple of weeks to talk all things physical therapy and personal training. So today we talk about IT band syndrome and what effect does body weight really have on joints, performance, and longevity. Let's get into the show. We are back in the studio. This is going to be released as episode number 82. And I have with me the Duke of the East Coast, Dr. Michael Stair. And I did do a little bit of research. It's pronounced a duchy. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad we got that pronunci- pronunciation correct because that could have been uh, a problem. <laughs> now I feel like uh, you got to put together like a royal wedding and do the whole shebang and have an interview with Oprah and then you're, then you're set. Well, yeah, as long as the king of khakis is there, then, then we're good. We got to have all the, all the royalty. Although the sad thing is my, I'm probably going to be throwing my wife under the bus for this, but whenever she does the laundry, her mode of laundry is like, everything gets dried as hot as possible for as long as possible. Right. All together too. All together. And yeah, so yeah. every time like she does the laundry, my, most of my articles of clothing, like the ends shrink. So my khakis are now too short for me to actually wear. So I have to go buy a new pair. It's very upsetting. Isn't that something that you talk to your clients about that not to blame the dryer, but the, uh, you know, the diet, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> If they were getting tighter, that'd be one thing, but just like okay. the, the ankles keep creeping up. So <laughs> although the, the real lesson there is I should do the laundry and not just wait for her to do it. So that's, oh, I, I thought you were going to say the real lesson is to now you got a new pair of shorts, but yeah, there's also that I do yeah. have a few like sweaters that have been dried that shrank like 50% and they're now my wife's sweaters. So <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works in our house. Nice. Awesome. Well, we've got a topic uh, that I'm excited to talk about today, mostly because it's more near and dear to my heart because I've dealt with this issue on and off throughout my life. Um, so today we're going to be talking about uh, IT bands, and then we're also going to be talking about uh, body fat, pain, and dysfunction and how they're related. So I guess we'll start off with IT band syndrome, uh, a common but poorly understood problem affecting the lateral knee. Yeah, it's it's one of those issues where, um, you know, you, you go to school, you learn about uh, these things and you think that what you're presented is gospel. And then you look back over your career and be like, how did heck did we get this so wrong? Um, and and we have uh, we've been pretty far off when it's come to uh, treating the IT band. So um, it's a super common issue. IT band pain syndrome is usually what it's called. Um, usually affects the um, uh, a lot of runners. Uh, about anywhere from about twelve to fifty-two percent of runners will have this problem. So it's a pretty common issue. 
about up to 5% of people in the military. Uh, and uh, some estimates place it anywhere from two to 52% of all knee injuries. And that's probably because of how it's diagnosed. Uh, females seem to have a little bit more of an incidence than males, um, especially in um, soccer and field hockey and basketball. Um, and it's pretty common in cyclists too. Uh, about 24% of all cyclists. So it's probably one of the most common uh, knee issues. So that's something that's pretty interesting about it. Um, the big question is, is you know, first of all, is like, you know, I'm sure people want to, well, what is the IT band? Uh, is it a muscle? Is it just fascia? Is it a ligament? Um, and it's pretty much all of the above. So one of the things, this is super important because it behaves more like a, a tendon and a ligament, um, although it's, uh, there are some muscle components to it. So it goes all the way from your pelvis, um, attaches uh, the glutes, about a majority of the fibers of the glutes interweave into the fascia at the outside of your hip. Um, and the tensor fascia lattice, a muscle uh, from the top of your uh, pelvis, uh, down to the outside of your hip, 100% uh, of that muscle weaves right into the IT band. Uh, so then it becomes more of like a uh, very cartilaginous, uh, thick um, uh, tissue, fascia, that goes all the way down to the upper part of your tibia. So just below your joint line on the outside of your knee. So uh, it doesn't have a lot of blood supply. So that's another unique issue about it. Um, so in essence, it's like a really thick fascia, uh, behaves a little bit like a ligament, a little bit like a tendon. Um, other neat things about it, uh, humans are the only ones that have it. Uh, there's no other animals that have a IT band. So the like other great apes or things like that, other semi-bipedal uh, people in our evolutionary tree don't have them? Yeah, yeah. I think it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. And, and I think it's probably because of the predominant time that we spend upright in zero to 30 degrees of flexion. Um, that's when it's most active is absorbing uh, and maintaining that upright position. Um, and that's really what its main function is. Uh, its job is to eccentrically slow down uh, the amount of uh, tibia uh, movement. So whether the knee buckles in um, or whether it rotates in, um, essentially absorbing shock when we're walking, when we're running, uh, when we're landing. And uh, it's one of the most common things that people have pain on the outside of their knee. Uh, very commonly, the uh, iliotilic band is, is implicated. So one of the, uh, so I mean, I think that's kind of cool to know a little bit about what the uh, IT band is. Um, but here's the interesting thing. It has been predominantly thought that, well, what's causing the pain? Like, why are we having pain? What's the problem with it? And the initial thoughts were that the band rubs against the outside bone, uh, the femoral condyle um, of your knee. And that friction causes inflammation, and that's what's causing some of the pain. But when they really looked at the anatomy of it, they realized that that's impossible to happen uh, because what's happening is that um, it doesn't snap or slide over it. It has very diverse attachments that are anchored and interwoven all throughout the outside of the knee. 
so it's not possible for it to move back and forth um, over the, uh, the condyle. It's just the anatomy doesn't allow for that to happen. Um, the other thing is they're thinking, well, well, maybe there's some friction that's rubbing a bursa underneath there. Uh, there is no bursa, uh, contrary to some common you know, thoughts on this, um, under the uh, IT band as it inserts into the knee. So we've had two of those premises have been completely blown out of the water. It's not rubbing over the outside of the bone and it's not rubbing the underside of the bursa. And here's where things get really interesting. Um, it's not tight. Uh, there's been no evidence to show that it's tight. In fact, the test that we used to use in orthopedics and it's still being used. In fact, it's on a lot of the common documentation sheets for physical therapists doing evaluations. Um, something called Ober's test, where you lay on your side and you let your leg hang down if it doesn't hang down below parallel uh, to the uh, table that's considered to be a tight IT band. Uh, they've done some cadaver studies with this and they realize the IT band has nothing to do with whether or not that test is positive. Instead, it indicates whether your glute medius and glute minimus, uh, which are upper glute muscles, um, are tight. And that has really no connection to the uh, IT band. So that's pretty cool. Um, well, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's not cool if you're somebody who's been uh, told that you need to stretch your IT band. Yeah, um, or do horribly painful IT band rolling. Well, yeah. And, and we, let's get into that here because that's pretty. So now that we know about the anatomy and we can start questioning whether, we don't even have to really question, it's pretty definitive at this point, um, that it's not a tightness issue. Um, the reality is that it actually can't be stretched. It's just not possible to do it. Um, Chaudhry, I think, was one of the first to show this. And what they found is that the force that would need, be needed to create just a 1% um, shear or compression force <laughs> at the uh, tendon would be far greater than what our hands could produce. Um, Peppers actually and colleagues through a meta-analysis and systematic review has just released, uh, I think a couple months ago, investigated foam rolling and stretching. And they used uh, something called shear wave ultrasound, uh, which is a mechanism to see the uh, stiffness or displacement of soft tissue. And they did it all throughout the IT band. So not just at one location, up to the hip, the middle of the thigh and down to the knee. And they found that there was absolutely no effect, no change um, during or after of both uh, foam rolling for five minutes and of stretching. Um, so if you've been punishing yourself with uh, foam rolling, um, I have some good news for you. It's probably not necessary. I do wanna throw a little bit of an anecdote here or, or maybe a um, less of a research-based opinion on this. Um, I don't think that tells us that we should not do it or it's useless to do it. Um, there are some reports at the very least from the patients I've worked with, but I've heard it from others too, that it does give them some relief. And we've talked about this on podcasts in the past. You know, that might be just due to some other mechanisms, desensitizing the mechanoreceptors, some other neurophysiological responses. But what it does tell me that it doesn't seem like it, um, it would indicate then that you need to do it aggressively. So 
it doesn't seem like it would matter if you did it very, very uh, you know, painful, you know, produce pain, or if it was just very light. Um, so you're not being a wimp if you decide to, you know, go a little bit easy on using a foam roll. You're also not doing yourself any harm if you decide that I'm just going to not do this at all. I don't think it's meaningful or helpful. Um, it's not going to be harmful though either. Yeah, I remember when I was really struggling with IT band issues, and it was when I was playing a ton of basketball. And it, you know, the physical therapist had me do foam rolling, and eventually got to the point where the foam rolling wasn't helpful. Like it was, the foam, like the roller was too soft. So then I moved to uh, like a wooden dowel, and then I moved to like a barbell because it was. I don't know if it was the sensitization you're talking about, but eventually I would like had to be a really stiff thing to get any sort of like pressure to where there was any relief. Yeah. Have you ever, um, you know, I don't, I don't do any of it, but I, I'm, I've watched it a few times and I've wondered about this after I've seen a couple of injuries. Uh, you ever see what mixed martial artists do to their shins? Yeah. They whack them. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've hit my shin on a coffee table and it's brought me down to the floor. Yeah. And these guys are willingly kicking trees and, you know, they're using wooden dowels and, and then, yes, then they actually hit them with impact. Um, and that's, the, that's this kind of a time-tested mechanism. They know they're desensitizing, you know, in uh, <laughs> that tissue. Um, so th there may be some, um, some validity to that. Um, I just like to tell people it's not necessary and it may not have this, the mechanism of effect that they're thinking, but um, I just think it's kind of interesting to, to know that stuff. Yeah. So one of the things I think uh, it, whenever you hear that something that we thought was working, you know, we thought it was, um, due to snapping over the, the, you know, the bone and that's because it's stiff. And if we just, you know, roll it out or stretch it out or have a good manual therapist to that, that will fix it. Um, when we blow that up, it, sometimes you're left with, well, great, you know, what do I do now? And so that's kind of where I think, uh, some, some neat evidence is, uh, has pointed us in a good dire uh, direction. So what they think that's happening, that's causing the pain is uh, anatomically in that area, uh, there's something called a fat pad. And those are located around a lot of joints and muscles, especially the knee um, and uh, even a little bit around the ankle too. Um, it has many different functions, you know, uh, force absorption and, uh, um, and padding, as its name implies, the underlying tissues like the tendons. Uh, they are notoriously highly innervated though. Um, and they can get pinched there's also some synovial tissue uh, right around that area. Uh, so that obviously produces synovial fluid and that fluid can cause dynamic pressure on pain sensitive tissues. So what they think that might be happening instead is that there's an excess, uh, what's called a valgus force, or that's essentially when your femur starts collapsing to the inside. Um, knock knees is one way to think about it. Um, and that uh, can cause some inflammation on the uh, fat pad. And then that inflammation uh, also may irritate surrounding tissues like tendon. So um, it's a little bit of a cascade. Uh, so that's one of the proposed mechanisms um, or, or pain generous, I should say. 
So the mechanism that's been studied and pretty well uh, substantiated by some good evidence is that we're not properly controlling the femur, uh, allowing it to go into more of a valgus or adduction moment and uh, allowing uh, uh, more internal rotation. And that may be provoking some of the, um, some of the irritation to those tissues. Uh, why does that happen? Uh, usually it's because the muscles are either uh, weak or they have become weak. And one of the reasons they might become weak is due to inhibition to overuse. How does that overuse happen? Well, as you can imagine, and probably most of us listening have heard, it's when you escalate the training volume at too great of a rate. So you either uh, start running um, faster or more often than what you've used to or longer durations. Uh, more commonly, we see it with um, uh, an increase in down, downhill running um, or banked running. So you're running on a cambered surface like uh, on the beach or on a road that's uh, pretty strongly cambered or on some trails that you're always on one side of the hill. Um, that has been found in about 84% of all of these cases. Uh, there's usually a mechanism where you can clearly go to, it was just that they're doing uh, too much too soon. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that's, that gives us some insight about what to do to treat it. Then. Um, so one of the things that they're finding that's uh, the best thing to treat is first is you got to calm it down, you know, so activity modification. And that's the thing that especially runners and cyclists hate to hear. Um, but, um, you know, you can't, you can't build a building when it's still on fire, you know, yeah. so that's probably one of the most important things, but here's, here's a really good lesson for people that are wondering about how to manage injuries and in, in not just for ITB stuff, um, rather than focusing on what you can't do, focus on the cans. You know, I always say, count the cans. What can you do? You can cross train. You can focus on maybe a weakness of your training. Maybe you love to play basketball, but you don't like to do mobility or strength training. Or maybe you love to run, but you don't like to do um, any plyometric training. Or that wouldn't be a good example in this context, but uh, perhaps any other type of uh, training. So this is the time to work on that. Once it's calmed down, um, the next thing uh, that uh, it's best to focus on is uh, usually open chain strengthening. So that means things like clamshells, uh, sideline abduction. Uh, I, technically, bridges are closed chain, but that could be another one because of the low force demand. Um, any type of uh, open chain rotational exercises. So um, you can do that with a hip and a TheraBand or a cable. Uh, definitely working on core training. Once we get symptoms calmed down so that they're about usually like around a three to four out of 10. Um, then we'll move on to doing things like um, uh, closed chain strengthening. So uh, squats, step downs, lunges. Um, there's at that point, I would really focus more on the control. So feedback uh, that would uh, allow them to see whether their knee is collapsing inside or outside. Um, whether they're, um, uh, you know, their, uh, the hip orientation relative to their foot, to their knee, um, is preventing that valgus motion. And then maybe some low level agility stuff where, uh, we have them go to stop before they change direction and look and see 
how they're loading their knee. Um, once that's tolerated uh, pretty well, uh, a good indicator I have is that they can walk pain-free for 30 minutes or they can run for a minute without increasing pain. Uh, then we start adding more load, more dynamic uh, uh, loading of things. So we're going beyond uh, one leg squats and step ups and actually start doing some hops, some jumps, uh, gradually doing some walk jogs and then, you know, some jog runs. Um, but what we do have really strong evidence at this point um, is stretching does not help. That is not found to uh, positively influence the uh, symptoms. Um, injections, there is scant evidence that it can be helpful. Uh, I would be very cautious uh, because we know that it can cause some deleterious effects to tendons, especially those that are being repeatedly loaded. Um, fascial work, uh, so manual uh, fascial stretching or um, doing foam rolling has not found to be helpful. Um, and we have pretty good evidence, high quality evidence on that. So then I guess the next thing to look at then is how do you know if that's what's going on? Like how do you diagnose uh, an IT band issue? So if you're, um, I mean, obviously seeing a, a therapist is probably the best way to do it, but on your own, if you uh, lie down and you press the um, outside uh, lateral aspect of your knees. So if you find where your joint line is, uh, maybe the easiest place to find it is where that fibula head is. Uh, you ever hit your, uh, the outside of your knee on a coffee table, that little bone that protrudes out? Yeah, that's the fibular head. So go about two, three inches north of that and press down and then try to straighten out your leg uh, from, uh, uh, from a bent position to a straight position while you're pushing down. Uh, that is a rough description of what's called a Nobles test, which is um, one that um, is somewhat diagnostic for that. Um, if you're, uh, gets, have somebody observe you when you're doing things like uh, walking, going up and down a step, a one leg squat even, and if they see something, uh, see your pelvis dropping. So uh, the side opposite of the leg that you're having a problem drops down. It's called Trendelenburg. Uh, that can indicate lateral hip weakness, which is strongly correlated with this condition. Um, sometimes, you know, you, you got to make sure that you rule out other issues like a meniscus, arthritis, uh, patellofemoral pain. But um, usually the, the giveaway are those findings. Plus, there's been a history of uh, overuse. Uh, you've ramped up, as I mentioned before, your training volume and intensity. Um, Sometimes you're having problems with stairs and squatting, uh, but it's almost always uh, worse or provoked with running. Uh, what I like to do and what my colleagues like to do um, is do a video, uh, get you running to the point where you're fatigued, and then see if your gait quality changes. Um, take a look at a very hard version of like a, a one leg squat um, or a step down depending on strength and see if we see that, that Trendelenburg or that femur caving to the inside. Uh, sometimes you can see that with uh, landings from a jump. So those are pretty much the ways that you can find it. Um, those are some of the new developments as to what we've learned from what we thought to what we know um, is more likely what's going on now. And uh, what are some of the treatments that have been proven uh, to, be, uh, to be effective? 
So when we think about, like, obviously you have to immediately kind of decrease load. What is the time frame that somebody kind of has to do that? And then what's the time frame for kind of return to normal function without any issues? I usually tell people it's proportionate to the time frame in which they have had symptoms before modifying it. So if this is a relatively new onset, um, you know, the last 10 days I've started to notice and I'm getting some pain out here. Um, I usually say it's about a proportionate time to let it calm down. So give it about 10 days and it should calm down. Now you can start the rehab process. Um, if, this, if it's been going on for six months, we have two problems. One, we have a higher magnitude of irritation. Um, two, we have learned, actually three problems. We have learned compensation strategies, motor control changes, inhibition. And three, we have probably a, um, a hypersensitization of the peripheral nerves. So pain is a less reliable indicator there because the tissue is hypersensitized. Your body has learned to accommodate this, which often means you've inhibited uh, the very muscles that we need to uh, get back on, on track. Um, and the degree of, it, of tissue damage or inflammation is probably higher. So um, it's, it's usually directly proportioned to the timeline um, in which it's been irritated. Where people get really frustrated and they report to their doctors erroneously, they said, I've had this problem for six months. And the way I look at it is that you've been recreating the problem for six months. So it's not like it's taken six months to get better. It's that over the six months, you haven't done anything differently to make it better. So that might, uh, that certainly will make things longer. Um, that's why I tell people uh, when they're in, in training, you know, pain is not to be feared. It's not to be ignored. Um, it's something to, to learn from. Um, it will give you clues and indicators. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's the key method mechanism there. So, um, again, if it's been around for a couple of weeks, it'll probably take about two weeks to start calming down. And then I would say you can progress through those phases, depending on your prior training history and your current abilities uh, within, you know, a couple of weeks each phase. So expect about six to eight weeks and you can get back to relatively normal activity. Um, and I mean relatively because it might indicate that the prior level activity was not sufficient. You may, might not have done proper training um, before. So getting back to that same level might not be a good idea. So uh, it's, it's that proverbial, it depends answer with a lot of qualifications. <laughs> what role does anti-inflammatory treatment play? We don't know. Um, we don't know because we're not 100% sure that there is an inflammatory mechanism. Uh, there seems to be one in this case because of the uh, suspected tissue involved. Um, there's not as much of an indicator that there's um, purely mechanical damage to the band as opposed to inflammation to tissues around it. Uh, so if it is the synovium, if it is the fat pad, you would think that anti-inflammatories would have a better um, uh, indicator uh, for, for health. It does seem to be a more resilient tissue as well, an incredibly strong tissue. Uh, since it's not as much of a tendon as it is a muscle, um, you would think it would be less sensitive to the negative effects of uh, anti-inflammatories like a cortisone injection. Um, there haven't been great studies showing the effectiveness of NSAIDs versus uh, activity modification or rest. Uh, so in essence, we don't know. Um, I would, but again, based on the histology and the mechanism, I would be less concerned um, in the acute phases of trying uh, a cortisone injection 
There are some studies showing that if it's done within the first couple of weeks, it may be effective, uh, but the quality evidence is poor. And the quality evidence showing that it's effective for symptoms that have lasted longer than a couple of weeks um, shows that it doesn't have much of an effect. Um, so if cortisone injections uh, uh, don't have that much of an effect, I wouldn't imagine that NSAIDs would have a great effect. Um, so it, it's, we don't know for sure, but based on what we know, uh, probably not a, a really strong uh, mechanism. What is the likelihood of reoccurrence for people? Is it pretty high? You know, I, I haven't run across any um, studies that have uh, mentioned the, the reoccurrence, just, just the overall prevalence. And that might be where some of the reporting is off. You know, as I mentioned, there are some instances that range from 2% to 52%. Um, I'm wondering if that's conflating uh, one-time incidents versus recurrence. Um, I would, I would suspect that would be relatively high, um, especially in those who went the common route, which is let it calm down and then gradually resume activity again. Um, if they didn't get at the mechanism, which is uh, perhaps a weakness of the uh, lateral hip structures, uh, poor motor control and uh, poor training strategy, then it would seem to be reason that it would come back um, you know, again. Uh, but I don't, I don't know of any evidence that tells us exactly what the number is. From your experience, what percentage of people would you say, take some time off, let it calm down, and then don't really gradually get back into exercise. They just go back to exactly what they were doing. Like I would be a perfect case study for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it, it's, it's, I, I have, I'm a biased uh, person to ask about that because everybody, every reference I can give you are people that came to see me. Um, I don't know the ones that didn't come to see me, but um, I, I, it tends to, I, I, relative to other conditions, I would say it's, it's relatively low because these are people that uh, mostly are runners. And, um, you know, if they can't run, uh, they tend to figure out why, you know, what's going on with it. Um, so they, they're not very good at just, well, I'm just going to, you know, stop running for a little bit and, um, you know, see how it goes. Um, they're usually ones that would say, well, I'm going to stop running, see how it goes, and then come back and it keeps coming back. And they're like, all right, I got to fix this. I got to get new shoes. I got to get inserts. I got to do this stretch. I have to do this type of treatment. Um, Unfortunately, they end up doing a lot of the wrong things. They run, they read an article on Runner's World or, you know, uh, find somebody in the running group. And um, so by the time we see them, um, it's rarely that case that it's just been there for two weeks. It's usually been there for on and off for six months for a lot of their running career. Um, so they might ignore it in the short term, but um, they usually do seek treatment for it. Um, it's usually the non-athletes that uh, did a couch to 5K. Um, or that, um, you know, it's decided that, you know what, I'm going to, um, you know, try to get in shape here and start a new exercise program. And they're the ones that when they get flared up, they say, oh, I'm just going to rest and give it some time. So the active people tend to push through it or try to figure out a solution to it. Um, the relatively inactive people or non-athletic folks, they're the ones I think that do what you just su suggested, which is um, probably just give some time, rest and then more likely they'll come back. 
Perfect. Any other thoughts on IT band syndrome slash treatment before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, um, I, I was thinking about this as I was doing some notes on this. And I think this kind of teaches us some basic things that we can apply to all injuries. Um, one, try to understand the anatomy, um, whether you're a clinician, a trainer, or even just somebody dealing with this stuff. Um, because it does help you figure out um, what's causing this. Um, I, you know, not to, you know, say I, I predicted this, but I always thought it was weird when I was a student and we were going over how to stretch that muscle. The anatomy just didn't make sense to me. And it's nice to be validated seeing that later. Um, but if it's not making sense or you can't understand it, usually that's, that's a great way to, to learn about an injury and, and how it happened. Um, almost every case, the second big lesson is there's a load tolerance problem. The tissue has been loaded at a rate, at a speed, at a volume greater than what it can adapt to. So if we think about most injuries in that context, um, it, it does help us figure out how to solve it. Another theme, uh, tightness is rarely the cause of problems. I, I can, I, I, it's very hard to find uh, an example in which tightness is the thing that caused the problem. We have such an instinct to say, oh, there's gotta be tightness, so let's stretch it and that'll fix the problem. Uh, but in very, very few cases is that uh, uh, the key. And the final big lesson I'd say from, you know, this um, uh, microcosm coming from IT band world is rehab is almost always about let's calm stuff down and stay active as much as possible while you're calming it down. And then let's gradually build a load tolerance. All the while, let's improve the quality of movement and ingrain better uh, training habits. Um, that's pretty much rehab in a nutshell that applies to a lot of cases. And I think this investigation IT band really uh, brings those to light. Um, you know, one of the thoughts that's kind of popped up, especially over a lot of our conversations in the last couple of months is when we look at injuries and recovery from injuries, it almost feels like we need to take like a structural engineering approach, right? Like treat our body like we're a bridge, right? And be like, hey, why is this joint stressed? Or why is this thing, you know, broken or, or causing any issues? It, it seems like it's, it's very rare that we see injuries that arise from anything that's kind of outside of that, right? Like there's too much load too quickly. The load isn't being transmitted properly. It's, it seems to be more of that than um, like any sort of inherent issue with our own body. Yeah. I, I would say if, you know, extending that you know, <laughs> metaphor is a, is a, a bridge that's a retractable bridge run and operated by humans, yeah. <laughs> you know, because there's so many, nuanced um, in, in, uh, in different variables when you're dealing with a, a living tissue with a nervous system. But um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I think having that, uh, that mechanical um, slash behavioral um, analogy to it is, is a huge, uh, huge example of what, again, a lot of rehab is. Awesome. Well, we have one more topic we'll jump into. And it's, is body weight related to pain, injury, or arthritis? Yeah, you know, I, um, 
I really spent a lot of time looking into this because of uh, a few things. One, uh, it comes up a lot because of my background as a, I'm also a nutritionist and a, and a trainer. So patients, when they see me for their knee arthritis or, uh, you know, their back problem, uh, are quick to blame their, their weight. And, uh, you know, I always thought like, it seems on the surface pretty obvious, like, well, yeah, of course that's related to it. But I, I really thought, is there actually evidence that shows this? And if there is, then maybe that's a job that rehab professionals need to get more involved in, at least advocating for. Um, or maybe we should stop making people, you know, feel that compounding with their knee arthritis, it's their fault because of their weight. I mean, is there actually evidence behind that? Um, so I spent a lot of time looking at this and I was, uh, even as, as someone that's been in the industry for over a couple of decades, really surprised how strong and clear a lot of the evidence was. You know how it is, Brad, when you look into something, you realize that the evidence is all over the place and the most common conclusions that we need more evidence, right? Um, this is one of the cases where I walked away saying, there is a dearth of evidence and it's high quality evidence. So I broke it down into really three correlations. Because the people that I see that they're, of course, some people are worried about their appearance, but most are wondering about how does uh, my body fat level affect my, the level of pain I have? How does it affect uh, my performance? And does it make me more likely to get injured? So breaking it down to the first one, uh, performance. Um, there's two types of basic performance. One, the stuff that you need to do your day-to-day -day stuff, right? You know, going up and down the stairs, getting on off the toilet, on off the floor, lifting your kids. Um, and then there's the performance stuff, running, uh, sprinting, um, you know, all the, the high level athletics. So when we're talking about basic day to day stuff, uh, there is a strong correlation between um, body fat and, and body weight and the ability to do to go up and down stairs, uh, the ability to do your day to day life function. Um, what I thought was pretty interesting is two things in the studies that try to look at not just BMI, but they actually try to look at body fat versus, uh, lean mass. Um, it was the body fat that had the, the correlation, not, you know, the, the lean mass, which makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is that these studies were pretty good at, about controlling. Well, well, maybe the reason why they have more pain or, or limited function is because they have other issues going on. You know, they have cardiac issues and diabetes. So how do we actually know it's the weight? Maybe it's the fact that most people that have weight issues have those problems. When they controlled for that, um, so no disease, none of those things, it was just purely a weight issue. They still found that body fat was an independent uh, predictor of decreased function with day-to-day -day activity. Um, what's also interesting is that the older you are, the stronger the correlation between lean mass, not fat mass, in uh, your inability to do day-to-day -day functions. So it seems that when you're 65 and older, it's the amount of muscle mass that has a better predictor as to what your function is going to be like, not necessarily yeah. the amount of fat mass. So when we're looking at higher level performance, the uh, U.S. military has probably led the way in seeing what the connection is. Um, and that, of course, weeds out the older delt in this context. Um, and what they found is that when they looked at performance in, uh, uh, in aerobic activity, um, a third of the performance could be predicted 
uh, by body fat. Uh, meaning that there's many other variables, but at least 30 some percent of your performance is going to be predicted based on having uh, too much body fat. And when it came to things like uh, lifting and, and uh, uh, strength endurance, um, it was about um, a third of, uh, of that was also predicted based on, um, on lean mass. So lean mass had more of an effect on endurance and lifting. But when it came to aerobic activity, uh, fat mass had more of an effect. Um, and then they also found in law enforcement, as well as other military recruits, um, those who had uh, equal to or less than 18% body fat had significantly better performance across all domains. Um, so there is a correlation there. Another uh, uh, great group of researchers found that when it came to running speed, agility, and vertical, um, only a 2% change in body fat uh, was needed in order to cause a significant decrement in performance. So in essence, uh, they found charts that showed that, you know, a slight change in body fat might, you know, if you go from 18% to 16% in a military recruit, it might not make much of a difference. But if you're trying to go for like your max vertical or max speed, um, even at, at, you know, 18 to 16% could have a significant difference. Um, and another final thing about performance, it didn't seem to matter whether you had higher lean mass or higher fat mass. The heavier you were, the uh, lower your VO2 max was. Um, does that have anything to do with just the way VO2 max is calculated? That, that was brought up by some of the researchers. Um, they, I, they aren't sure if that um, is a, a mechanism of body size or a mechanism of how the, the formula is. So that hasn't been fully elucidated yet. What's, what's interesting about this discussion, and I, I always try to bring this up to whenever we talk about, um, you know, body weight, let's say BMI and body adiposity and like overall health, whether it's, you know, here you have activities of daily living, whether it, whether it's, diabetes risk, cardiovascular disease risk, et cetera. And kind of in the conversation that has happened a lot recently with kind of the healthy at every size and like metabolically healthy, even at a higher body weight is one of the things that I think gets lost in the discussion is just understanding what risk means and how risk works. Right. So like, for example, let's take activity of daily living, right? Regardless of whether or not you're metabolically healthy, regardless of what your adiposity is or whatever, at a given BMI, your risk of having lower ability to have activities of daily living is increased, right? So it's the same thing with like cardiovascular disease or diabetes of even if you have, let's say, quote unquote, you know, a clean lipid panel, but your body fat percentage is 25 or 30, there's no like condemnation of you as a person. There's no, none of these bad things, but the risk profile is very objective, right? It's like, Hey, you carry a 20% higher risk of within the next five years developing diabetes because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, and so those are those things that it's just like understanding what the objective facts are. And then like, Hey, how do we, how do we think about that in the context of everything else you have going on? Right. So the example right. you gave is like in the U S military, probably going from 18% to 16% for somebody probably doesn't affect their, them to do their job, probably doesn't affect 
really their performance on the battlefield. It doesn't affect all those things, but it definitely has an effect on whether or not you can jump 28 inches or 30 inches. Like those are things that we can objectively measure. Well, yeah, and that's, that gets us into, you know, the other <laughs> couple components of this, because what, from the U.S. military standpoint, what they were more concerned about wasn't so much the performance, it was the injuries. Yeah. Because that's where the data was actually stronger. So getting somebody from 18 to 16% didn't really have that much of an impact on whether they could, you know, carry a rucksack, you know, you know faster or slower. Um, and in fact, you know, as long as if they preserved lean mass um, or if they lost lean mass, it might have had a negative impact on going from 18 to 16, for example. But the, the other indicator was, does it actually make them at risk for injury? And if they're injured, uh, there's a lot of logistical, um, you know, consequences of that. So, you know, before I get to that, though, I think the pain, because people think pain and injury are the same. It's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think it will be clear in just a minute. But that's what people are, that are seeing me are really concerned about. And I think a lot of people are just in general. Um, there have been multiple meta-analysis and systematic reviews um, that have correlated the amount of body fat uh, with an increased incidence of back pain, knee pain, and foot pain. Um, but it's not just because of the weight. The weight isn't the sole mechanism because they're finding that uh, there's a far greater likelihood of people who have high body fat that have hand arthritis. Clearly, that's not a weight-bearing uh, joint. Um, so they're finding that in cases where they, uh, again, looked at lean mass versus fat mass, it was the fat mass that was correlated with increased risk of pain, not the uh, increased lean mass. Um, some other neat studies they found uh, for every two-pound increase in body weight, and increases uh, the joint reaction force at your kneecap uh, with each step by about five pounds. Um, the, the mechanism seems to be a dual mechanism. It's the mechanical aspect, sure, certainly, but also they think it's a, uh, mech, uh, a chemical impact due to the, the hyperproduction of cytokines that correlates with having uh, higher levels of adipocytes or fatty uh, tissue. Um, the good news is, is that there's a significant decline in risk of cartilage damage or the amount of cartilage damage uh, when people lose weight um, and a significant reduction in pain uh, when people lose weight. So uh, we have both uh, a clear you know, dual mechanism and good evidence correlating it um, to both having body composition, but it seems like we can, or about excess body fat, but it seems that we can bring that down um, and, and lower the pain from that too. So is that, would you say more of a longer term chronic risk reduction approach? I mean, how much does weight loss in the short term help with like a, more acute issues that people have? Uh, pretty significant. Um, they're finding that um, just a, a five pound loss, for example, or 5% loss and you know, depending on which research uh, had significant reduction. So most of the studies are relatively short-term studies, uh, you know, six, eight, you know, week to, you know, 12 week. Um, so they're finding that that's actually, you would think it would be, especially if you predominantly thought it was a mechanical problem, that that would be over months and years. Uh, but no, it does seem to happen relatively, um, again, in the span of, you know, lifespan relatively quickly, which is, which is super encouraging. 
Um, is there data on like the the difference effects that like body weight has on more like pretty like high energy injuries versus more like chronic injuries? So like ACL tears, um, you know, fractures, those things versus more chronic issues. And is there more risk towards one or the other? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I kind of broke that um, analysis uh, down to kids and adults because it seems there's a big difference. Uh, the evidence with kids is very mixed. Um, there's not a lot of consistent evidence showing that there is a risk of increased body mass or adiposity in injuries in kids. Um, there is an exception to that. Um, overweight kids do have a higher incidence of knee injuries and um, they have a, uh, and in non-athletic kids, there is a significantly greater risk of fractures. Um, so that might speak to the question of high injury versus, uh, you know, chronic. Um, it would make sense that kids are less susceptible to the effects of chronic loading and more susceptible to the high energy. So the evidence that we have so far uh, isn't super clear but it does point to yes for um, knee injuries especially and for uh, fractures and non-athletes um, when it comes to adults um, they're at significantly more risk of falls older adults um, significant more risk of fractures and um, anything that has an operative you know issue like total knee uh, total hip uh, they have a higher risk uh, they have a higher risk of traumas um, and of back and tendon pain, um, or injuries, I should say. So, um, yeah, that kind of speaks to that. And again, these are for the adults, it's actually a lot stronger evidence. There's a lot more research. Um, so, you know, in short, uh, there is definitely a connection between performance, um, especially in, um, uh, in, uh, uh, in day-to-day -day performance, there is a connection, uh, with pain and reducing uh, body fat can be one mechanism. We see a correlation with reduced pain. Um, and there is an increased risk of injury. Uh, that risk seems to be more um, uh, related to uh, middle and older age adults um, than it does with kids. And this is a big tangent, but one of the things that's always blown my mind is if you look at, and this is mostly just from basketball, because that's basically all I know in my life is, when you look at people's vertical leap, I don't think there's any correlation between like body weight, body habitus, and people's ability to jump. Yeah, you know, that, that's, it's, that's an interesting distinction that you made. And um, in, in looking back at the evidence, I realized that, or reflecting back on it, I realized that there wasn't evidence showing the connection between body mass and vertical height it was the effect of losing it yeah so you know if you are at 30 percent and you go to 28 percent, it improved your performance but there wasn't evidence showing that somebody at 30 percent was going to automatically have a lower body uh, or vertical compared to somebody that was uh let's say 25 percent. yeah um that being said if you look at the athletes that tend to have the best performance, uh, depending on what sport. So a sport, if we're going to stick with vertical, like basketball, 
Um, and, you know, football will be another one, but that includes linemen to in wide receivers. So that's probably not as good of one. But when you look at something like basketball, uh, there is a, uh, a very uh, narrow average of body composition that yeah. tends to correlate with higher performance. Um, so, yeah, so you could probably reason that say that, you know, if I want to get my vertical up, uh, getting towards that leaner end is going to be the case, but it, you can't also use it as a talent predictor. You can't yep. say, well, this guy's 12%. This guy over here is 18%. So I'm going to put my money on the 12% guys having a higher vertical. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, to max out that ability, you have to have the lowest amount of body weight relative to what you have. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's always interesting. Like I think of guys currently in the NBA, somebody like Derek Jones Jr., who's built like a stick, right? He's just a very small frame person, has probably a 45 to 50 inch vertical. And then you have guys like Zion who have the same and their body frame, they probably have 120 pounds on that guy. And so it's just such an interesting piece that body adiposity definitely correlates well with those things but like different frames and their ability to produce force. It, it's so, it's just very strange. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking with a patient about that. He's also a member of the uh, skinny calf club. Yep. Um, I, <laughs> yeah. My, my daughters and I are competing for size of, you know, we have similar size calves and in uh, the same thing, I haven't noticed any correlation. You know, I see guys that can jump out of the gym and it looks like their legs are going to break in half yep. of their calves. And others have looked like they've had a watermelon implanted in their calves and they can barely get over a credit card. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, it's pretty interesting. It just goes to show, as in many, many things, from performance to pain, um, it's, it's multifactorial. And, and maybe that's a good uh, segue into uh, another reminder as we're talking about the correlation with body fat and pain, injury, function. Um, all those components, pain, injury, and function are multifactorial. Um, I always emphasize this. So you can't get rid of your knee pain just by losing weight. There's plenty of, of underweight people that have uh, knee problems too. Um, it's one of many factors. Uh, I always say in rehab, we have to control the controllables. Uh, there's factors that we can influence, factors that we can't. And this may be an additional factor that we can influence. Um, that may give you um, an edge towards something that's really important. Um, and the evidence is, is getting pretty strong on that side of things. Awesome. Well, any other last minute thoughts before we wrap it up here? No, I think I, uh, I think we covered it all. Awesome. Well, Mike, thanks so much for jumping on with us. It's always a pleasure and we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you got it, man. We'll see you.